Today's podcast is brought to you by Ashlyn Lee. Founded by two moms of tween girls, Ashlyn Lee has set out to tackle puberty and periods. With monthly delivery of organic period products sized for teens or adults and a community of experts to help guide conversations between parents and daughters, Ashlyn Lee will ensure you're informed and prepared. Get on the wait list now at ashlynlee.com. That's A-S-H-L-Y-N-L-E-E.com and enter full bloom for 10% off your first order. That's ashlynlee.com code full bloom. Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based psychotherapists and mothers on this body-positive parenting journey with you, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 57. This season, our theme is body positive parenting in real life, and we are featuring personalized questions from our patrons. If you'd like a body positive parenting question of your own answered, consider becoming a patron of the podcast at www.fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patrons' support allows us to keep this podcast going strong, and your questions allow us to customize our content for you. This week's body positive parenting question is a good one. Here it is. I'm writing because I'm spending more time at home with my daughters recently, thanks coronavirus, and either they're on social media more or I'm just noticing it more. One thing I've become aware of is one of my daughters getting intensely upset over her Instagram. Even as I write this, it sounds so strange to me. She will cry with frustration, lash out at the rest of us, and be sad for hours because she hates the way she looks in pictures and can't find one to post that's good enough. I don't know how to help her in those moments and feel really helpless. And at times I'm mystified and find myself losing my patience with her. I think she's beautiful and hate seeing her get so stressed over this. I'd love any advice on how to respond or help in this kind of situation. Thanks so much. Okay, so this week we decided to ask Dr. Stephanie Jacobs to join us in answering this question. Dr. Jacobs is a licensed clinical psychologist who works with adults, adolescents, children's families, and schools in New York City. While practicing as a clinical psychologist at the Mount Sinai Health System, Dr. Jacobs also had roles as the program director of the Mount Sinai Eating and Weight Disorder Program's Adolescent Intensive Care Program, as well as the director of outreach and prevention. 
She has extensive training and experience using cognitive behavior therapies, family-based treatment, dialectical behavior therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy to treat eating disorders, anxiety disorders, OCD, and related disorders, substance abuse, personality disorders, as well as varying behavioral and emotional challenges. Dr. Jacobs has been one of my mentors and supervisors throughout the years, and I'm just so excited to welcome her to the podcast and introduce her to all of you. So let's jump in. Stephanie, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank you, Leslie. I'm happy to be here. We're so happy to introduce you to our audience and hear um, your answer to this podcast question. But first, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do? Sure. I am currently a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in private practice in New York City. And this is my second career. I had a career in human resources, otherwise known as organizational psychology now, in banking and in technology, and left that about, I want to say 15 years ago now, to pursue clinical psychology and started with a master's in mental health counseling, which is when I started working at Sinai and was lucky enough to find lots of people who were willing to train me in many different modalities and learned a lot there about CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, family-based treatment, otherwise known as FBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and dialectical behavior therapy. And when I was there, I finished my practicum for my master's in mental health counseling, and then I decided to pursue a PhD in clinical psychology, not knowing if I wanted to be a researcher or not. And then later on, after graduating with the PhD, decided that my heart was really in the clinical work and that I wanted to work with individuals and families. And I have been doing that since graduating in 2015. I guess one of the things is that I've, I was the extern at Sinai who didn't leave for a while and rotated through different groups. I worked in their eating and weight disorders program for about the, I think, nine or 10 years I was there while also rotating through their detour uh, disorders of tics and OCD-related disorders. And then I also worked on their inpatient unit. And it's there I really got a lot of this great training and then later went to work at a group private practice where I really went more in depth in learning and practicing dialectical behavior therapy before ending up in private practice. And that's one of the things that um, I want to make sure that our listeners know is that Stephanie was actually my mentor several different times um, and just has, you just have so much knowledge from my opinion. But one of the reasons why we asked you to join today was because of this kind of intersection between working with eating disorders and understanding eating disorders and understanding kind of from an FBT model as well, the kind of ways in which parents and caregivers can come in to help with DBT and your experience in DBT and um, thinking that you might be just the right person to help us answer this this question. So I'm actually going to start with the question today and then kind of help unpack DBT and how to kind of maybe from that space, how you might work with 
answering this question. So let's, let me just read the question real quickly, which is, I'm writing because I'm spending more time at home with my daughters recently. Thank you, coronavirus. And either they're on social media more or I'm just noticing it more. One thing I've become aware of is one of my daughters getting intensely upset over her Instagram. Even as I write this, it sounds so strange to me. She will actually cry with frustration, lash out at the rest of us, and be sad for hours because she hates the way she looks in pictures and can't find one to post that's good enough. I don't know how to help her in these moments and feel really helpless, and at times I'm mystified and find myself losing patience with her. I think she's beautiful and hate seeing her get so stressed over this. I'd love any advice on how to respond or help in this kind of situation. So I'm wondering where you would start with that. (laughs) Um, So practically, I'd start with noticing the parent's distress, right? How, How the parent becomes very activated and wants to problem solve, right? Liz looking for advice and and how to help her daughter in this situation who's also in a huge amount of distress. You know, and and really sit with the parent first and allow them and to experience their own distress because often we get when we feel distress around someone else's pain, we want to go straight to problem solving and take their pain away because we care about them. And often that leads to, you know, in DBT, what we would call an invalidating experience because the person is can't think straight usually at those times, right? That they're not in a place where they're finding their reasonable mind, their their logic, that something else is going on. So I try to first help the parent acknowledge that that's also in some ways happening for them, that their, you know, their emotional system is activated and, and there's an alarm going, must, must fix my child's distress. And that that's not necessarily possible. Um, and if it is possible, we need to step back and be able to manage our own distress first so that we can think straight and see what is and what's not in our control to help someone else. A little like that airplane saying when you get on, they say, please put your oxygen mask on first before putting your child's on because you need to be able to have enough resources to help your child and you need to help yourself first. So I'm realizing I want to ask you just to explain a little bit before we get into kind of how a parent can put their oxygen mask on first in this situation. Can you share with us a little bit about just the basics of DBT, um, what it is, why it's helpful for most parents, not just for like us in the, in our clinical offices and our, our patients. Right. So uh, let me start by saying that DBT is an amazing development by Dr. Marshall Linehan and is very, very much an in-depth philosophy and applied psychology in a lot of ways that requires a huge amount of training and that I do a DBT-informed practice. So I'm going to put that out there first and then really do like DBT in a nutshell, kind of how I explain it to my friends and family. Um, and then really refer people to behavior tech and, and the many 
organizations out there that really go in depth around what DBT is, who it's for, what it means to be a team and so forth. So I'm just going to keep it simple here. So when I think about DBT, I think of real life skills. Um, and I've, you know, ever since I found DBT in the four modules, uh, which I'll just talk about briefly, I thought to myself, how come they don't teach this in sixth grade? And, and it winds up that there is a huge movement to try to get it into schools. And it seems that at least mindfulness is kind of making its way in slowly, because I think these modules are really life skills overall and certainly helpful in in different ways, depending on what someone might be struggling with at any point in life, but overall really life skills. So the first module is mindfulness. And these don't necessarily have to go in any order, although I think you need mindfulness before you can really understand the other modules. Mindfulness in a nutshell is awareness and how to focus attention. That part between acting, thinking and acting or feeling and acting that moment that you're able to look at what's going on and direct your attention. And then there's the module of distress tolerance. I think of distress tolerance as how to make the least worst decision when you can't think straight or how to manage a crisis. And I think when we think about what a crisis is, it's when people are overwhelmed and really need a a short-term solution to survive that crisis before they can problem solve or think about priorities two through whatever number. And then there's emotion regulation, which I think of as how to make the best decision with the knowledge you have when you can think straight and how to figure out what decision is effective for you or in service aligned with your values and how to prioritize effectively with SMART goals aligned with those values in order to decrease vulnerability in in life to the extent that we can and also find as much joy as possible, aka resilience or other ways as, as you're also accepting that part of life is pain and that we can't avoid that entirely. And then the fourth module is called interpersonal effectiveness. And that's really about how to communicate with others effectively and find fulfilling connections with family or other relationships, varying degrees of intimacy, while sharing a finite amount of resources on this planet. So it requires, you know, everything from negotiation to even knowing what you want when you're asking for it or what you're saying no to. You know, and, and again, in order to use interpersonal effectiveness, you can see where you'd need to have, and I, sometimes I call these muscles, um, a mindfulness muscle and a distress tolerance muscle and an emotion regulation muscle, because it requires a lot more resources to be able to think clearly and know what you want and then ask for what you want, especially when it comes to, you know, people in positions of authority or when we're feeling scared or when there's interpersonal conflict. So those are, that's DBT in a nutshell. <laughs> I like that. I like thinking about the muscles too. And, and also I, I really like listening to you explain it. It really does feel like it's, you know, an unraveling, like a step, step-by-step process, although it isn't required, you know, that you learn each module in that order. It, you can see how, even in this, in answering this question, you can see how 
one step really leads to a more successful next module, kind of next set of skills. Right. Especially when, you know, I think of um, emotion on that that barometer of zero to 10. And, you know, it's, you may not need a distress tolerance skill if you're, you know, anxious or at a three on that scale. But usually if you're anxious at an eight or a nine, then you definitely need distress tolerance first, just to be able to help yourself get to what I think of as below a seven and hopefully at a five before you're really making decisions. So let's talk about this kind of this situation in the question um, that was asked and your answer it sounds like begins with the the parent themselves using some distress tolerance skills kind of being being aware using mindfulness skills to name what's happening for them and in in reaction to their child in distress and then using their own set of distress tolerance skills before being able to help or be with their child. So can we can we talk about the distress tolerance and how you might work with um, some of the skills in this situation? Sure, especially as this parent seems like they've they've tried in some ways to bring logic into the situation or be soothing and and that they're saying that they then become mystified and and find themselves um, losing patience and that's that point where we can't think straight anymore and usually say something we don't mean or withdraw in a way that that might be uh, perceived as rejecting. So the idea here would be for the parent to, to notice where they are on that barometer of zero to 10, right? And if they're below a seven, I'd say, well, are we talking like we're holding on for dear life here or, you know, are you able to think clearly? And if they're in a place where they can think clearly, then it's really about looking at what is and is not in your control, right? And part of mindfulness that we learn in DBT is that we can observe the environment and that's what we can see. We can hear, you know, anything we can take in with our senses. So, you know, for this, for this parent, if they could, if they were in a clear headed place, they might notice that their, their child is crying and observe that there's a lot of self-loathing talk and, and express to their child how they are, are concerned hearing that and, and curious about what's going on that would, would bring them to such a place. However, most of the time, parents will want to take the pain away because they get activated real quickly because, you know, we get activated when someone we love is in a lot of pain and that puts us in a lot of pain and we want it we want it to go away. And especially when we notice it doesn't maybe map onto the reality we're perceiving, you know, as, as this mom says, you know, you know, she's a beautiful girl and I don't understand why she says these things. You know, the urge, right, and DBT we call this, the urges come from emotion mind is to say, oh, you're, you're beautiful. Like, I don't know what you're responding to. So the idea would be to look at what is in your control. And I think it's in the parent's control to to be curious and really understand what their child is experiencing at that point, right? So that they can help their child problem solve if that's something that their child can think straight in the moment to do, or be there validating that they're in this place that's stuck and let them know they're there with them in it. Can you just explain a little bit more about validation? I know you've said it a couple times, and I think on some level everyone knows what it is, but on another level we don't. 
Sure. A val- so validation is a big part of DBT, especially in, within the interpersonal effectiveness module. And I think I think it was Alan Frusetti who's who I remember teaching this really great way of thinking about validation of what do I validate and what don't I validate. And validation is at the very basic level, just acknowledging someone else's experience as their experience. You know, and then in different ways, you can validate at different levels where it genuinely makes sense to you, either given this person's history or given this person's goals or values and understanding more about why they're doing what they're doing. You know, you're looking to validate and validation can be agreement, although it doesn't, you can completely disagree with someone's opinion or what they're, how they're experiencing reality in a given moment. However, you can acknowledge that they're genuinely experiencing reality the way they are describing to you, you know, so it may seem to mom that in this situation that it doesn't make it that she disagrees that her daughter doesn't have a picture that is good enough in which she's attractive enough. However, what she can do is validate that her daughter is genuinely having these thoughts and these judgments in her head that that are really painful, that are are saying to her that she is not good enough or doesn't look good enough to post a picture. Okay, so really starting with getting curious about what the daughter is experiencing and validating that rather than saying, but you're beautiful. I don't understand. Exactly. Because we call that, it can be thought of as positive invalidation where you're saying something kind, although it's it's not mapping onto the other person's experience. And so they feel misunderstood and like you're not getting it, right? So you really want to start with acknowledging what is, right? And that's part of distress tolerance is accepting reality as it is in this moment without trying to change it so that you can you can become aware, you can then redirect your attention to what is in your control, right? And that other people's thoughts and feelings aren't in our control. We can't just make someone else feel happy when they're really scared. And really it's a first step forward to join them in their experience. And you can do that through validating their experience, which again, can just be acknowledging that they are experiencing pain and upset in that moment. And then if there's nothing else you can agree with, really staying curious about how it makes sense to them to better understand their perspective until you do. Yeah, I think that's so critical, right? That little phrase that you just said of, how does this make sense? What's the kernel of truth in your daughter's crying um, and being upset and sad about her interaction with Instagram? Where does it where does it make sense to her, right? Exactly. Like what's happening inside her experience that when she looks at Instagram, it's leading to to these thoughts and feelings that I'm observing are happening as she's crying and stating these really nasty things about herself that don't map onto my to my reality. Right. And really staying curious until you understand that before you try to problem solve. Okay, and that's kind of the the next step of 
then what? <laughs> then what? How do I help her? You know, I worked so hard to manage my distress around her distress and here I am validating and now what? How can I help her with her own distress? Right. And so there are these two parts of distress tolerance. One is reality acceptance and the other one are are crisis survival strategies, which are short term strategies to get through the crisis. Because the idea is that distress tolerance skills help you not make the situation worse so that you're able to see the the natural pain that's there and use emotion regulation skills when you can think clearly to problem solve what is in your control. Otherwise, we're, we're left with something called radical acceptance, which is the skill that is necessary to understand and practice that teaches us that what we cannot control, we can willingly accept, which does not mean approve of or like. And in this case, I think for mom, it's radically accepting that her daughter is having these thoughts and feelings, right? Because then that allows mom to notice what's in her control, which is that she can't just take them away and that her daughter may still be in pain, right? And that, you know, what's something that maps on in the physical world, like when you see, you know, your kid is really experiencing physical pain and you can't take it away, but you can be there with them in it and let them them know that you're there and that, you know, you're willing to help if there's something that would be helpful. And what are some of those crisis survival skills, right? That kind of second prong to distress tolerance. Right. And and again, distress tolerance in those crisis survival skills are to help you get to a place where you can think more clearly. Because sometimes people tell me they tried some of these and they didn't work. And I ask, well, what do we mean by work? And they say, well, I didn't feel good. And, you know, so I always want to make it clear that distress tolerance skills help you feel less bad in the long term, right? They don't actually make you feel joyful or good or, or that you're okay with the situation as it is. Right. It's like we're not actually solving the problem necessarily, but we're turning down the volume of the emotion mind of the intensity that can't help us even get to problem solving. Exactly. Exactly. And we're we're helping ourselves not act on impulse or the immediate urge, which often is to avoid or escape the pain, which often makes the whole situation worse, right? So we're, we're attempting to not make the situation worse at this point and get through the crisis so that we can get to a point where things are a little, I have to call it slower inside or less intense, which allow us to take in the information around us to see what we can problem solve. Some of the skills within distress tolerance, um, and some of them are more cognitive, some of them are more behavioral. Things like weighing the pros and cons of acting on the impulse, which might be, you know, for this parent to, you know, often the impulse is to problem solve. And that's what, you know, say what's reasonable. Hey, you're, you're beautiful. You don't have to worry about this. So that actually counterintuitively, you know, to most parents makes the situation worse when they say something kind, which they mean, which is true for the parent, but it lands in a way that is not what the kid's experiencing and makes them more upset. 
So the idea would be for the parent to be able to, you know, weigh the pros and cons. You know, I find that is usually not the, the go-to skill. One of the the most effective skills, I think, is is one called TIP, which is really about how to physiologically bring yourself down from a higher number to a lower number. And everything in DBT has an acronym that that helps you remember the, the skill itself because there are so many. So T stands for temperature. And this one is about putting cold water, bending over and invoking a scuba response, a, you know, where you're bending over the sink or putting cold water on your face or putting your face bent as you're bending over in ice. And, and it actually activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which allows you to slow things down inside. And then there's intense exercise. You do, you know, like 25 push-ups or a bunch of jumping jacks. There's a way that your system then slows down after a big burst of energy. Progressive muscle relaxation is one P. And then the other P is also diaphragmatic breathing. So in that, your belly breathing, where you're breathing in and you're breathing out longer than your inhale. So those skills, when you practice them, are are ways to focus your attention and bring yourself down physiologically. And then there are different cognitive strategies. One is more distracting, where you're distracting your thoughts because we can't stop ourselves from having thoughts. However, we can redirect our attention to other thoughts. Um, So someone might listen to music as a distraction, someone might knit, knitting tends to be a big one. And, you know, any behavior that's allowed, that's incompatible with acting on the urge that would create more of a problem for you in that moment. And then there's there's self-soothe, and and then there's many different skills within one category, but they're either behavioral or cognitive way to, to shift your attention away from acting on the urge. And is this something that you would recommend parents try to help their kids do? Yes, absolutely. However, that they do it for themselves first, right? So I always want to encourage parents to practice these skills themselves and to see how they experience them. And because these skills will work. However, not all skills work all the time and not all skills work for everybody. However, most people, I would say, find that some of the skills work some of the time and that especially the distress tolerance skills are immensely helpful in giving you a pause or enough time to recognize that you don't want to make the situation worse. So I think those skills tend to be incredibly effective. And I I think they're much easier to learn than they are to do, which is often why I'm, I'm encouraging parents to use them themselves or to, to take stock of what has worked for them in the past so that they're able to do that with their with their kids and model that for their kids. And I just, you know, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts myself around coronavirus and how, you know, these situations are happening often, lots of distress right now, and how in many different parenting scenarios, not just this one that we talked about, it can be useful to to play around with 
people listening might might find that it's really helpful in so many other ways, um, not just parenting, right? Uh, during during especially this time, absolutely, yeah, in life, yeah. So I want to get to our million dollar question and just hear what you have to say about that. So wondering from your perspective, if each parent listening to this podcast today took away and did just one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? My answer to that is to practice the skills themselves, right? To see what works and what doesn't work, uh, you know, so that they have an experiential way of being able to speak to their kids about the skills that might be helpful for them because you don't know because you're a different person. Although there's a lot of genetic similarities, which I think make it more likely that different things that work for you might work for your your child. But I think that it comes from a different place having practiced them yourself. So I really encourage, and again, I think these are life skills. I think there is no downside to, to practicing them. They, you know, they can't see a way that they wouldn't enhance anyone's life, you know? And again, I think these skills have been around forever. You know, I think it's a real beautiful blending of Eastern and Western philosophy and psychology. And the packaging of it is deceptively simple. Um, but the practice of these skills is really the focus. So if I, if parents could take one thing away, you know, it would really be practice these skills so that there is an, a natural way of, of disseminating that information to your kids. Right. And, and that there's within that an acknowledgement of that there is pain in life and that we all have to learn how to manage that pain. And that, you know, a lot of distress tolerance is when we we won't accept the pain that is present and that becomes suffering. So if, you know, parents are accepting there is pain and that it's natural that their child will experience pain, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to take it away right away. In fact, they can notice how they are in pain when their child's in pain, where that comes from, that it's because they love their their child, and that what's most in their control is being able to manage their own pain to see what would be effective in whatever situation comes about. You also need a lot of self-compassion because these these skills are really, really hard. I mean, I, I practice them myself and I think it's a lifelong process. It's it's almost like trying to master an instrument or, you know, but that instrument is your body in this life. And so it's really hard and requires a lot of self-compassion too and in in the practice of it not being the perfection of of being skillful all the time. I don't think anyone is skillful all the time. I agree with you so much. And we did recently do an episode on on self-compassion and what it is and how to work towards it and with it um, and how just how vital it is to, to being human. But I also agree. I mean, I trained in DBT a while ago and it just is one of those things that's constantly... I'm in practice with, um, and it's not because I'm treating some particular problem within myself. It's more because 
they're just skills for everyday living. Exactly. Especially now. <laughs> Especially now. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so thank you so much for sharing them with us and our audience. And we'll be sure to, to share with our audience how they can connect to you. And just, I hope you have a, a good weekend in your quarantine. What are you going to do this weekend? Yes. Uh, yes. As as I continue to practice these skills, it's it's about putting you know activities on the on the calendar and making sure I'm spending time with. I'm I'm lucky to be quarantined with my family, so we are spending time and we love playing sequence. So that's something that we put on the schedule, and I look forward to. And, you know, I also, as, as you probably know, love Zumba. So I have online Zumba helping keep me sane at this point and, and spending time with, with family. And, and just, I think, having things to look forward to, right? That, you know, in, in emotion regulation, that would be called the pleasant activities list. But I, I think that that's important to have. Thank you so much for having me on, too. This has been really wonderful to, to be a part of. I love what you're doing. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email to info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast and visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening, and remember to tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.